Right, our speaker tonight, David Charnick. David was born in Bethnal Green in 1964, mm -hmm. which makes him a genuine EastEnder. Yep. And he still lives in, uh, in Bethnal Green. Uh, his speciality is hunting out the more nooks and crannies of London. <laughs> and he is a qualified City of London guide. I am, yeah. And a member of the City of London Guide Lecturers Association. Mm -hmm. and a member of Footprints of London, mm -hmm. a cooperative of independent London guides. He has a large repertoire of walks, and we would hope to encourage you all to sign up for David's walks. Please do. David has written two fictional books, both volumes of short stories, Death in the City and Behind the Curtains, and we've just heard that... Um, Pen and Sword have just published Mickey Mayhew's book, and I can tell you that Pen and Sword, who at one time were our foremost publishers of military books before branching into crime, have uh, published David's study of 18th and 19th century crime and wrongdoing in the East End, the dark side of East London. Unhappily, the, the same publisher did not publish my last book. But there we go. And there was a second book on the way. That's right, isn't it, David? There uh, there's a couple sort of brewing in the background, Good. yeah. Good. Mm. And uh, David has also been involved in teaching. Since April 2014, mm -hmm. um, he has been teaching a tour guide, the Idea Store Learning, the adult education service at the London Borough of Tower Hamlets. And he is also has trained some pupils at George's, George Green's school to present a circular tour of the area around the, the school. And last year, he trained a group of volunteers at the Walthamstow Church of St Peter in the Forest. He has also undertaken projects with the UK Educational Development Agency and with the British international school so we are delighted to welcome you david uh to a talk tonight and we hope that everything will go well and as i say we hope that you will sign up for david's walks david charnick thank you very much oh i've got one of these one here. thank you thank you very much thank you for uh, inviting me along to chat with you a little <clears throat> about crime in whitechapel Victorian crime. Uh, I'm going to tell you uh, a few of the stories from this uh, rather gruesome little text and take you into um, a little consideration of how crime is constant and how it changes. Because there are constants in crime, they come back in different forms, but also as areas develop and change, so does the dominance of certain crimes. And we'll see that as we go through. Now, I'm focusing, of course, on Whitechapel, because you're the Whitechapel Society, and we're focusing on the Victorian period, and I'm going to be using um, Weller's 1868 map from the MAPCO website. I'm sure that a number of you will be uh, familiar with that already. It's a very useful resource for research. But the thing about the MAPCO, uh, sorry, the 1868 map, is it's got a lot of stuff on it, a lot of detail, so it's quite useful for illustration. Now, we're going to begin with violence. I'm not going to mete out any violence onto you, but we're going to be looking at violent crime. 
Um, Whitechapel has been associated with violence for a long while, and most particularly, of course, because of a series of murders that took place in autumn of 1888, at the time known as the Whitechapel killings or the Whitechapel murders, although, of course, nowadays we know them as the Ripper killings. <coughs> but I'm not going to say anything about that. First of all, because you're the Whitechapel Society, so you've had the Ripper killings up to your eyeballs, I'm sure. But second, because we have the eminent true crime authority, Lindsay Civita here, and I'm not going to go head-to-head -head with the Civ. It'd be a bold man who encroaches on her domain. So, um, we're not going to talk about uh, violent crime in terms of murder, we're talking about street crime. Now, this is the classic scenario, the garrote. The garrote method uh, involved talking to your victim while your accomplice came up behind, and then you stick the arm round the neck and pull the victim backwards. And the victim is too busy trying to regain balance to be able to defend himself. And I say him, because as far as I can see, garrotting was usually uh, practiced on men. And uh, so the victim is helpless, and you can pick the pockets, and off you go. Now, I'm going to mention garrote that took place just down here at the bottom of Osborne Street in 1850. I hope you don't mind. I've brought some notes for reference purposes. This is William Weller. William Weller, on the 31st of October, he was coming along Whitechapel Road, and he got talking to this man, this man sort of passing the time of night. And uh, before he knew it, well, he said in his statement that the man chucked his arm over his chest. I mean, not when you chuck your arms around someone, you're hugging them, aren't you? So um, I, all I can think of is that he, uh, the, the young man put his arm out, pushed the victim, because the victim fell back into the hands of the two accomplices who held him by the shoulders and then held themselves to his pockets. And then they dropped him on the ground, and off they went up Osborne Street. Now, when you were garroted, the first thing you did was to pick yourself up off the floor, and you run after them. Not necessarily because you're going to grab hold of them and duff them up and get your bits and pieces back, although, of course, that could happen. But because you wanted to keep sight of at least one of them in the hopes that as you're chasing them, a policeman will appear. And that's what happened. And they caught this fellow. And, uh, well, he was one, they caught one of them, one of the three, who was Cole, John Cole. And uh, John Cole was only 17-year-old. Most of these are kids, 16 to 20-something, you know, quite young men doing that. Anyway, they caught him. He was one of the ones who picked the pockets. And what happened was he had the key, well, his front door key, dropped it down, and another policeman saw it, grabbed it, said, right, there you go, bang to rights. So anyway, he was a repeat offender, so he got two years, which is not bad because some of them got a lot more. Uh, this seems to be a favourite spot because earlier that year, in August, another labourer, uh, sorry, well, it was a labourer, another labourer called Edward Mitchell was also uh, robbed here. He lived in Stratford, which in Victorian times, of course, wasn't in London. It was the other side of the Lee. And for those of us who had the good fortune to be born on the correct side of the Lee, it's still Essex. Um, anyway, uh, he'd come to Shadwell, down to the south here, to get paid for the job he'd done. As I say, he was a labourer. And he got paid, went for a couple of drinks with his mates, came up to Whitechapel Road here to get the horse bus back to Stratford. And he was waiting there. A young man said to him, oh, uh, have you got any tobacco you could spare? So uh, Mitchell says, yeah, sure. 
gets his tobacco. Next thing, pushed on the ground. And the young man and an accomplice hold him down and rob his money and everything. And then again, off they go up Osborne Street. And I'm pleased to say that they got caught as well by two plainclothes policemen. So both of them, McCarthy, who was the man who talked to him, he got seven years. Funnily enough, Jones, the other fellow, he only got 12 months. And uh, they, were, they were young, again, anyway, as I say. Now, I don't want to dwell on the men because what's more interesting is the women. Men, as I say, they were subject to the garrote. Women weren't. They had fewer pockets for a start. You'd have a couple of pockets in your skirt. You wore, wore more voluminous skirts in those days. And you'd probably have a jacket with pockets. But by and large, you had stuff hanging from you. You'd have a chain with a watch on or bits and pieces. And, or your, your watch might be a pin on one on your blouse like a nurse wears, you know, that kind of thing. And so women were usually assorted from in front and the chains yanked off of them or indeed pulled and broken. Didn't matter if you broke the chain because you were only after the gold. You weren't necessarily going to fence it as the full thing. So, but the, the same rule applied, funnily enough. Once the robbery was done and the felons were heading up the road, the ladies followed them. So, for instance, Sarah Klein. Sarah Klein, on the 27th of September, 1870, she was coming along Commercial Road here with her mum. Haven't got Sarah's age, but her mum was 80. So I'm assuming Sarah was probably in her 40s, maybe 50s. Okay? And they were just coming along Commercial Road, and they crossed Mulberry Street here when Sarah was accosted by this young man. There was a brief tussle, managed to get the chain with her watch on off over her neck and off he went up Mulberry Street. Now, before he left though, he pushed her over on top of mum. She's 80, so having someone pushed on you is a bit of a thing anyway, but when you're 80, God. anyway, down she went, down goes mum, down goes Sarah on top of her. So Sarah gets up, Never mind mum, she's off up Mulberry Street as well. Uh, a man called Charles Monk saw everything and he came over the street and uh, he made sure mum was okay and then he went up Mulberry Street as well. So uh, by this time, Sarah has headed down towards Charles Street. So she's come up Mulberry Street, along to Charles Street and when she was there, a young man misdirected her. They went that away, and so she went up New Street here heading up towards Fieldgate Street and then out onto Whitechapel Road. And of course, there's no one there because she'd been misdirected by one of the gang. So there was the man who robbed her. He passed the goods on to an accomplice who was waiting around the Charles Street area who then made off with them. And then the third one, he hung behind and he misdirected Sarah. So, thing was... They've disappeared. She can't see them. Charles Monk can't see them, but had a good look. So descriptions were given to the police who said, oh, yeah, we know who they are. And they were arrested uh, the next day. So um, let's see. Three suspects, they were arrested in a pub on Mile End Road. And sorry, I'll just uh, tell you what they got. Charles Whitehead, he was the man who attacked her. He was 20 years old, 
and he got seven years. Alfred Hughes, he's the man who picked up the goodies from Charles, he was 23, he got 10 years. Now, William Harris was also 23. He was the one who misdirected them, not guilty. Wasn't involved in the crime, so they couldn't pin that on him. So he got away with it. How about that? Now, not all the pursuits, of course, were unsuccessful. <coughs> so um, we're moving to, excuse me, 1850, <coughs> when Ellen Marshall was coming along the road here on Whitechapel High Street. And she came up towards Half Moon Passage there. She was up here, and she was accosted by two men. One of them, we know the identity, because he's the one who got arrested. That was Charles Duggan. He was 20. But both of them were, you know, fairly capable lads. And they tried to get her chain off of her. She wasn't having it, so she fought back. And there was a good old tussle with Charles Duggan before eventually he managed to lift her, her watch chain. And off he went down Half Moon Passage here. Closely pursued by Ellen Marshall, who caught him and tussling with him, meanwhile hollering out for the police, yeah? Now, um, there was a police officer down on Ailey Street here, Great Ailey Street, and he came up to Half Moon Passage just in time to see this, this tussle and for Charles Duggan to break free. And so Charles Duggan went along Duncan Street here, hotly pursued by Ellen Marshall and a police officer, and then onto Lehman Street, and up heading up Lehman Street back to Whitechapel High Street, when he emerged, he collided with a second police officer, Samuel Richardson. And Richardson described it as being hit by a small horse. But, although he was knocked over, he managed to grab hold of Duggan and to hold on to him until his colleague arrived, uh, with uh, the enterprising Mrs. Marshall as well. And so uh, Charles Duggan was done bang to rights. As I say, he was 20 years old, and again, a repeat offender. So he got seven years. <coughs> Not always was a pursuit possible, though. Uh, Esther Samuel was assaulted in August 1856, 27th of August, in the morning. And uh, one of the reasons we know it was in the morning, because a schoolboy on his way to school saw everything. And she was coming along uh, Whitechapel High Street here, and she drew close to the mouth of George Yard. Now, um, as I said, you're, you're, you're steeped in Ripper law, I'm sure, so you'll know that George Yard is now Gunthorpe Street, and it's where Martha Tabram, a.k.a. Martha Turner, was stabbed viciously to death up here in 1888, in August. But, anyway, um, <laughs> Esther was beset, again, by three men, and she was fighting them off, and eventually one of them, uh, late, later identified as Patrick Bryan, he managed to break this chain off her neck, and he made off. Now, the thing about the, her chain, it, it had a watch, it had other bits and pieces, but most particularly, it had a locket with a miniature of her husband who was a tailor and draper in West Bromwich. She never said what she was doing in Whitechapel, but there you are. Now, she went off in pursuit, only to be stopped by the crowd. This is the morning. There's loads of people there, loads of witnesses. This is the thing. A lot of these crimes were just committed in front of loads of people. You know, it's not all nighttime stuff. 
and uh, the crowd stopped her. You're not going up there. Far too dangerous. As you may know, George Yard was an extremely dangerous place to be. Uh, it got tidied up after George Holland arrived in the 1850s and started his George Yard mission. Um, I mean, when Martha Tabron was killed, it wasn't that she was killed in an insalubrious area. She was killed, in a, as I'm sure you know, in a block of model dwellings where uh, cabmen, dock workers and other people lived, you know, ordinary uh, workers, industrial and artisanal people. Um, anyway, so they stopped her going up. A man gave chase, but he, uh, he couldn't see anyone. They'd gone. But again, she'd had a good look at the man who assaulted her, got the chain off, Patrick Bryan, and was able to describe him to the police. And as I mentioned, this little schoolboy, he saw everything on his way to school. When he got home in the evening, he told his mum. I said, right, tell the police. And so they filed a report. So he was able to do some identification as well. And it strikes me as strange that these people didn't think that they would be easy to identify. And remember, they're all the repeat offenders. They're all the sort of people that are well known to the local police. But there you are. Criminal mentality. Now, talking of violence, though, up here we have George Street coming up the middle of a, si a kind of sort of skewed square. We've got Commercial Street coming up on the western side, Brick Lane and Osborne Street on the eastern side, topped with Fashion Street and Wentworth Street. And this was a very dangerous place to be in Victorian London. Uh, as uh, Frederick Thomas found out, he was a sailor, 1850, in July. He was down by London docks. He was on Ratcliffe Highway, the highway as it is now. And um, as sailors do, fancied a bit of female company, and he picked up a woman, 18 years old, whose premises were at number two, George Street. And she took him back there. So they must have had a bit of a journey up um, Dock Street, Lehman Street, onto Commercial Street, and then uh, a right into Wentworth Street. Took them an hour, though, so they must have popped off at a couple of pubs on the way. Anyway, thing was, they got into her room, and they got into bed. He got into bed fully clothed, because he's a sailor. He's been ashore a few times. He knows you can get, get your slops stolen. So he was in bed fully dressed. And as they lay there, another woman came in. She was 23 years old. And she lay herself down on top of the bed. And he's probably thinking, oh yes. And then another woman came in with three men. And the women pulled the bedclothes up and they bound him by the head to the bed. So he's there, he can't see a thing. And they stripped him down to his underwear, the men. Um, all he had left was his canvas un long underwear and his shirt. In case you're thinking, canvas underwear, that's a bit scratchy. Um, this would be from sails that were no good for sailing anymore. You know, uh, they're not stiff anymore, and so they're taken down, replaced with new ones, and the old canvas would be given over for people to make clothes with. By this time, it's been so weathered, it's been nice and smooth, a bit like cotton. So, yeah, so um, and they kept him in the house till about 9 o'clock in the morning, and then they chucked him out in that bedroom. He was all on his own. Um, so he went to the police in his underwear. Uh, he was able to identify them all, and so... The upshot was all six were arrested. And uh, what happened to them? They were um, 
transported seven years each to, the, to Australia. By this time, of course, the Australian penal colonies were changing. Uh, a lot of uh, former penal colonies were becoming proper colonies. You know, um, British Australia basically was coming into play, coming into birth. Um, so anyway, so that was his experience at number two George Street. Uh, he didn't get his property back. Well, he got his braces. No trousers. He got his braces. Anyway. <laughs> But there were plenty of slop shops around there where you could have got uh, more clothes. Now, um, that is robbery, but it's not on the streets. It's a kind of abduction. And there is a most interesting story of abduction of a solicitor's clerk called Frederick Jewett. Now, he was in Whitechapel, and uh, so another Frederick, and this is 1850, the 10th of January. So it's the same year as Frederick Thomas, although it's four months previously. And he was in the area. He didn't say where he was, but he did say that after his ordeal, when he was getting into a cab, he was some 200 yards from where he'd been uh, last conscious. Because what happened is he was walking along the road and he became aware that uh, someone was next to him on his left-hand side. And he managed to get a quick covert glance and he saw it was a woman the next thing a cloth <laughs> was over his face chloroform and he was out and uh, so from then he remembers nothing until he woke up in the morning excuse me, in the morning the following morning um, and he was in a dingy bedroom and he was lying naked except for his sock uh, in what he described as a horrid bed. And uh, he... Sorry, if you are um, squeamish, you might want to put your fingers in your ears for the next five seconds. He was copiously sick into a chamber pot, vomiting. And, uh, and then um, he tried to get out. He could see most of his stuff was stolen. The waistcoat was on the chair, but obviously that had been rifled. The pockets were empty. The trousers were there, and they were mud from the knees down to the cuffs. So obviously, when he was out, because the chloroform, the women, for it was women, must have grabbed him by the shoulders, and being shorter than him, as they've dragged him along, his lower legs have drag dragged in the muddy street. So anyway, uh, his uh, boots and hat were found later on under the bed. So he's gone to the door, bang, 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 bang. Um, the pot man from the frying pan pub, which again, you know your ripper stuff, you'll know the frying pan pub was on the corner of Thrall Street and Brick Lane, Polly Ann Nichols, oh sorry, Polly Nichols, Mary Ann, um, he had come to collect the empties and he heard, uh, uh, sorry, a Jewett heard him coming past, his footsteps, so bang, 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 bang on the door, because the door wasn't locked, it was padlocked. And as it so happened, his abductors had put the key under the door because they didn't want him staying there. Um, so he passed the key out and the pot man let him out. Now, uh, there was a man called um, Williams who was upstairs. He was a, oh, sorry, William Saunders. Got the wrong, William, wrong way around. He was living upstairs. He was a painter, as in painter and decorator, you know, not landscapes and so on. Um, he was the only person in the house. So Jewett, uh, asked him to go to the city to get a colleague because Jewett was, uh, as I say, a solicitor's clerk in his uncle's 
practice on Lime Street near Lednor Market. And so um, Saunders went, he got a colleague who came back in a cab to rescue Jewett. Now, the reason I mentioned about the vomiting, is Jewett was not a well man. He just recovered from a severe bout of jaundice. And in the course of the trial, a doctor confirmed that he must have been administered an opiate, probably laudanum, because of the vomiting. Uh, that would have upset his stomach. So he, when he woke up, he was in agonies and stuff like that, and it took him a while to recover. Now, um, it didn't take long to identify the uh, perpetrators. He was held at number 8 Thrall Street. The landlady's husband had a beer house, just a, a beer shop, alehouse, just along the road at number 18. And she overheard um, Higgins, Martha Higgins, one of the uh, perpetrators, no, Margaret Higgins, sorry, one of the perpetrators talking to this fella about fencing Jewett's stuff. So she told the police about this and Margaret Higgins was apprehended at her lodgings on Keat Street, just here. And, of course, she said, no, it wasn't me, I was there, but it was Fat Bet who did it. Elizabeth Smith, Fat Bet. Um, and uh, so she said to the police, right, what you want to do is go to George Street and pick up Fat Bet. So having secured uh, Higgins, Margaret, Margaret Higgins, uh, two policemen went along, classic manoeuvre, one knocks at the door while the other one's out the back. And as she scurried out the back, she was taken. Now, again, not very old. Margaret Higgins was uh, 23, Fat Bet Smith, 22. Again, young people, okay? Now, um, they try to put the blame on other people. Other people have used this room, that sort of thing, blah, blah, blah. No, didn't wash. And they were transported for 15 years each. How about that? 15 years to Australia. So, Lots of violence on the streets. Thing is, though, this is, of course, not a novelty. There's been a lot of violent um, uh, robberies on the streets in the 18th century and previously. Uh, but this, of course, was not the sophisticated garot or anything like it. It was highway robbery. Um, now, highway robbery was a term specifically for robberies on the highway between towns and cities, except in London. Uh, street crime, street robberies, muggings in London were also known as highway robbery. So I did want to try and get a picture of um, Blackadder as a highwayman with Miss Cheapside, but sadly I couldn't. Now, so this is a crime, as I was saying, about continuity. So it's a crime that comes back and again and again in different guises, and there is still mugging nowadays. But London and other cities in the Victorian period, they were changing. Times were a-changing. And different crimes were coming into play. Most particularly, poisoning. You get a big rise in poisoning in the Victorian period. Excuse me one second. Sorry, I was doing a tour this afternoon, so... 
the old Hobson's choice is a little delicate. Anyway, um, poisoning. Now, a lot of this was through either ignorance or indifference rather than malice. Uh, for instance, food adulteration. You've got, um, <coughs> excuse me, you've got people like bakers and so on who now have an increased clientele because of the increased population density in these new industrial cities. And so they eke out what they're doing. They adulterate the food without necessarily knowing what that substance is going to do to someone. They, oh, well, it's white, and it's white flour, so eke it out, you know. Um, in the same way that builders, um, you may have heard of something called Billy Sweet. Builders, when they were building cheap houses, slums, would often adulterate the mortar and make it go further. Uh, the trouble is that meant it didn't set properly, so uh, 20 years or so down the line, the houses start to sway and start to crack. Um, so food adulteration, uh, including the old favorite, arsenic. I'm sure you know, you may have heard, actually, um, I say I'm sure you know, uh, of arsenical wallpaper. Those wallpapers printed in a lovely shade of green, uh, but the green was derived from arsenic. So as people live in these houses and they light them with gas mantles and they warm them with open fires, the arsenic starts coming off the paper and harming and indeed killing people living there. But arsenic, of course, made a very nice green food coloring. So um, arsenic actually became the front runner for poisoning. So in the 1851, you get the Arsenic Act, restricting access to arsenic, arsenical, and arsenious compounds. Um, but that was only in things like pharmacies and so on. Hardware shops, paint shops, uh, color shops, oil shops, that kind of thing, they were selling uh, items unrestrictedly that contained poisonous substances. And these were readily available not only to adults, but also to children. So this is a punch cartoon, as you see. Uh, 1849, two years before the Arsenic Act. Poisons for the asking, fatal facility. And you've got the little child there. Please, mister, will you be so good as to fill this bottle again with laudanum? That's laudanum, tincture of opium. And let mother have another pound and a half of arsenic. <laughs> pound and a half of arsenic for the rats, and, uh, and uh, duly qualified chemists. So this isn't just someone in a shop, it's someone who should know what they're doing, selling this child. Oh, yeah, anything else? Any, any other article? And children getting access to poisonous substances resulted in poisonings of parents, school teachers, other people in authority, against which the children, against whom the children, had a grudge. <coughs> For instance, uh, a young man called William Hinchcliffe. <coughs> now, William Hinchcliffe was uh, 12 years old in 1873 when he started poisoning uh, his schoolmaster. <coughs> he was at, it, it's not actually on the map, presumably because the, the, the railway is coming across it, but down the bottom of Mansell Street, uh, which was at number four, subsequently renumbered to 96. It's where the Tesco's is at the bottom of Mansell Street, if you know that, just across from the Weatherspoon down on the corner. Um, anyway, the uh, East London Industrial School for Boys. 
the industrial school. Have you heard of Felton? Reformatory, Felton Borstal. Uh, that was one of these early uh, industrial schools. Basically, they were for young offenders. And uh, also, boy, uh, they were for boys, by the way. Also, boys whose parents couldn't control them. And a lot of them were boarders. They actually stayed in. Although they did have day boys as well. And uh, Hinchcliffe was one such. He was... Um, 11 years old in 1872 when he must have been playing up and his master John Bowden, the, the, uh, the schoolmaster, uh, started meeting out some corporal discipline to him. Uh, apparently Bowden um, grabbed him by the ear and pulled him off his stool and uh, later administered a beating to him and uh, one of the school fellow schoolboys at the trial confessed, uh, well, he testified that um, after the beating, that's when Hinchcliffe said he was going to poison Bowden. But nothing really kicked off until January. In January, um, that was when William Hinchcliffe started doctoring John Bowden's tonic. Bowden had a tonic containing quinine. Uh, quinine is a great analgesic and uh, the big bottle of tonic, and obviously teaching kids in those days was just as stressful as it is now. Except, of course, these were young offenders, so, you know, a bit heavier going, perhaps. But where did he keep his bottle of tonic? In the cupboard, in the classroom, with the children's slippers. So, young William Hinchcliffe, in January 1873, had a bottle of liquid which he said to his fellow school pupils, right, this is t nothing covert about this at all. Said to them, it's what do you put in your eyes? So presumably containing Veronol. Um, and uh, they put that in the tonic. Now Bowden, giving uh, evidence at the trial, said that uh, after that date, his tonic did taste a bit bitter, but it didn't seem to hurt him. So maybe it was a weak solution or maybe it was a big bottle, who knows, a big bottle of tonic and a small bottle of uh, eye wash. So, unfortunately, nothing happened. But unfortunately for Hinchcliffe, he's got, he's got to try again. So he sent a boy called Loughton out to buy what they called cipitate or cypriot powder. Now, I thought at the time when I read this that maybe they meant citric acid because that's a, a white powder, you use it for making lemonade but uh, they didn't. They meant precipitate powder. Amino mercuric chloride, or ammoniated mercury as it is now. Um, mercury is still used for skin uh, creams, but obviously in a really low dose. So this little boy, Loughton, has gone out and bought this stuff, brought it back to the school, and handed it over. And Hinchcliffe says, I'm going to put it in John's tonic, John Bowden, the master. So he did. In it goes. And uh, thankfully for Bowden, <coughs> he had a look at the tonic because he was a bit suspicious because of the foul taste. And he saw what he described as a white scum floating on top. So he took it to the school superintendent who took it through to the doctor who analysed it and it came back with this mercury uh, uh, analysis. Now in those days, they didn't know mercury was poisonous. So... Um, the doctor said, oh, it would have given him you know, a great deal of pain and discomfort. 
and uh, didn't actually say that it would have killed him, which it would have done. But because Bowden saw it, or saw the, the scum, and got it investigated, thankfully he was okay. So um, that was going a bit too far. So Hinchcliffe was hauled up before the Central Criminal Court Old Bailey at the age of 12 on a charge of administering this uh, mercury substance. And he got off the... Ch sorry, I must read it. Um, he got off the charge of... Um, well, so let's see. Uh, he was found guilty of unlawfully and maliciously administering poison with intent to aggrieve John Bowden and with intent to an annoy him. How about that? Annoying. Really annoyed. All these pains annoys me. But he's not found guilty of administering poison to Bowden with intent to injure him. How about that? He's deliberately gone and stuck this thing in the drink, the tonic, but he's not guilty of trying to injure him, just to annoy him. Anyway, um, he was sent to Feltham. So he was sent to Feltham uh, Reformatory. And uh, Feltham Reformatory, um, they did quite a lot there. You know, they, they did a lot to help you, uh, including they had their own training ship, HMS Dreadnought. And they would teach you all sorts of stuff. Uh, what they did at the industrial school, they would give you basic um, education. But they would also teach you how to make uh, brushes and paper bags and ink and um, boot black, stuff like that. Practical skills that would give these, or hopefully give these boys, a sense of achievement, of actually doing something that mattered. And uh, in that way, trying to steer them towards a, a better course. But um, Feltham had a far wider range of activities. So in the event, I mean, Hinchcliffe ended up much better off, really, than if he'd stayed here. So that was done with malice. And there are other examples as well of children um, doing malice, uh, malicious poisoning. Uh, there was a young girl who lived on Mercer Street, which is no longer there, between Cable Streets and Ratcliffe Highway. And uh, Twine Street next door, that's still there. Uh, but um, she had spent the Christmas with her mum, who was ill. Her dad was a steward on an ocean-going liner. So he was away. He wouldn't be back for ages. And she'd gone through this Christmas, a new year with her mum, being very ill. And the little girl had had enough. And uh, also, whether it's true or not, uh, a young woman who lived the other side of Cable Street, a young woman who was due to get married, she had told the girl that they would go off together. She would move in with the couple and they would start a dressmaking business together. Of course, at the trial, the young woman denied this vehemently. Oh, no, 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 it's all in her own mind. But seemingly, that's what um, the girl believed. So when her mum sent her out in early January for a jug of beer from the pub, she went to the neighbour, said, oh, mum said, will you lend her a penny? The penny went a lot further in those days. Um, and uh, so the neighbour said, oh, yeah, of course, you know took the penny to the hardware shop and bought a tube of phosphorus uh, paste, squeezed it into the jug of beer and took it home in front of a young girl, telling her that it's a noxious substance and then chucking it in the gutter so it was easily found afterwards. And it was, uh, uh, thankfully, the, the paste wasn't soluble, but enough bits of it were for it to damage the taste of the beer 
So mum thinks, oh, this beer doesn't taste very well. It's not me being ill. It's really bad. And so she decanted it out and then saw these globules of green at the bottom. So, you know, th these children got access to poisons or poisonous substances really easily in the 19th century. But it wasn't all malicious. Our final story, nearly over, um, concerns arguably Whitechapel's most famous missing building, the Pavilion Theatre here on Whitechapel um, <coughs> Road. So uh, you've got Baker's Row here, uh, which is now the lower end of Valance Road. And the pavilion was last rebuilt in the 1890s. That's the third and final building on the site, looking quite grand. Demolished in the 1930s, this is what it looks like now. The derelict space. And what is interesting, think how close to the centre of London that is, and that space is still derelict. Why hasn't somebody done something with it? Anyway, um, the thing is, though, that's what the original pavilion looked like. So uh, that's the pavilion theatre, the original one from 1827 until it was demolished in 1858 for the second one to be built. <coughs> and our story <coughs> is set in 1850, and it concerns, uh, 23rd of July, in fact, <coughs> an actor called James Walker Elphinstone. <coughs> and he was performing at the pavilion. Now, this is, by the way, the, the interior, the house of the second theatre, okay? We haven't got one of the first, but we can use our imaginations. <coughs> anyway, Elphinstone's on stage, doing all the necessary, and then suddenly he notices in one of the boxes, you know, the sideways-on bits, a woman called Martha Sharp, and she is stalking him. Now, Elphinstone is quite happily married with children. He's not interested in taking a mistress. But Martha Sharp is not going to take no for an answer. And she stalks him. She haunts him in the company of a Mrs. Horborough, who acts as the go-between. So Elphinstone may be out and about. And suddenly, there's Mrs. Horborough in front of him. There's Martha Sharp over there. Uh, Miss Sharp wonders if you might like a little conversation with her, things like this. There's uh, one time that Elphinstone mentions when the case comes to court that uh, after a performance he went for a beer at a nearby pub, could well be the one that used to be the Bull, which is now the Sonargon restaurant, just the other side of the corner of Valance Road. Anyway, he's having his beer. It's Mrs. Hobra. Oh, Miss Sharp wonders if you would like to take gin with her. And there's Martha Sharp over there. So she's becoming a nightmare. And so you can imagine what he felt like when he saw her in the box. No Mrs. Horborough this time, just Martha on her own. Probably because of what she was planning. Because she disappears at some point while the performance is going on and goes round to the stage door on Baker's Row with a paper bag. And um, a man called William Davis comes by. He is a waiter at the King's Arms, an inn on Baker's Road, now Valance Road, uh, demolished in the 1920s. It's no longer there. And he's a waiter. He's used to commissions. She asks him to take in this bag to Mr. Elphinstone. So he takes it in. He hasn't got a clue what it is or who she is or anything. He takes it through past the stage door to Elphinstone's dressing room, gives it to Thomas King, who is Elphinstone's dresser. And King has a look inside. Ooh, it's a tuppany jam tart with a lattice top. 
And so he says, it's for Mr. Elphinstone. So he says, right, well, I'll give it to him when he comes off stage. So he comes off stage. I'm oh, sorry, I, I presume you know what a dresser is. It's someone who helps with the changes of costumes. Anyway, Elphinstone comes off stage. King says, look, lovely tuppenny jam tart. I don't know who sent it in. Must be an admirer. Elphinstone knows who his admirer is. I don't want it, says. You can have it. You can, you can have it. You eat it. Get rid of it. Whatever. I don't want it. So King takes it home. And says to his wife, Charlotte, ooh, lovely tuppenny jam tart with a lattice top. And she has a bit of the crust, uh, but she's on her way to bed. So I'll have it tomorrow. And so he goes off to bed shortly afterwards. He, Thomas King gets up in the morning after his wife, comes to have his breakfast and finds his wife. Sorry, uh, it's another vomit moment, I'm afraid. She, she's vomiting, bringing up this tart. She's eaten most of it except for a round bit in the middle. Under the jam, there's green stuff, as she called it. Okay? Now, she's vomiting away like nobody's business, and she's very ill. And uh, sh she's seen by a doctor who sees the remainder of the tart. And uh, he examines the green stuff, and he finds in it portions of several beetles. These beetles, Spanish fly, Litter vesicatoria. There we go. How about that? Spanish fly. Now, Spanish fly has been used as an aphrodisiac since ancient times. And the way it works is that this beetle is a Cantarides beetle, and it gives off a substance which will blister your skin. So these are known as blister beetles. And it aggravates the blood in a small dose. It will aggravate the blood. And it will give you, well, if you're a man anyway, it will give you an erection. But that's all it does. It's purely physical. It does not excite sexual desire. But it's because of the erection thing. That's why since the ancient world, it's been seen as an aphrodisiac. So it, it, Probably an alternative to Viagra, because you've already got the desire, so it doesn't matter. But um, anyway, so she's obviously heard Martha Sharp of Spanish fly, <coughs> but doesn't have a clue what it actually is or how it works. So what she's done is instead of getting a tincture of cantaridine in alcohol or similar, which is what you do when you administer Spanish fly as an aphrodisiac, she's got a whole, presumably a sort of small handful of these beetles and brushed them up into a paste. And then she's taken the top, the lattice top off the tart moved some of the jam away and slopped this paste on and then put the jam back on top. Put the lattice on and there you go, into the paper bag and off to Elphinstone because she's obviously thought, oh, well, I'll give him a good big dose and he'll be all over me. Uh, anyway, <coughs> thing is, if you have cantaridine, which is the, the, the secretion, in a large dose, it strips the lining off your stomach. Now, your stomach is basically a bag of acid and it's continually digesting its own lining. So it's continually replacing its lining. Again, sorry if you're squeamish. You've got to go home for your supper and start thinking about what's happening in there. But um, that's why you should chew your food so it dissolves more easily in the acid. Anyway, but as I say, nothing to worry about, obviously, because the stomach renews its lining all the time. Except <coughs> if you put a dose of cantaridin in there, and it will strip the lining off, and the stomach will digest itself. And that ain't good. That will kill you. 
Not immediately. Take its time, but it will kill you. And that's what could have happened if Charlotte King had eaten that bit of the tart. Thankfully, she didn't. There must have been little bits of uh, beetle mixed in the jam that she. I mean, that's probably why she's. She probably. What's this? Beetle legs or something, you know. And that's why she didn't touch the rest of it. But she had enough to make her very ill. But she did recover. So, Martha Sharp's in trouble. She's up before the Central Criminal Court, Old Bailey, on a charge of feloniously and maliciously administering cantarides to Charlotte King and James Walker Elphinstone. Now, the jury decide, quite reasonably, that there's no way she could have known that Charlotte King would have eaten that jam tart. So she's not guilty. And the judge in addressing the jury, reminds them that the, uh, the hypothesis had put, been put forward that the only reason she administered this Spanish fly was for aphrodisiac purposes. It wasn't done with malice. And so the jury accept this and she's found not guilty. So she walks from the court without a stain on her character but with a lot to think about. <laughs> and uh, poor Elphinston, you can imagine thinking, you know, What's she going to do next? <laughs> Hopefully she won't. And uh, there seems to be no record of any further um, dalliance, as it were, on Martha Sharp's part, any further stalking. So seemingly she learnt her lesson. So there you go. As I say, that is the uh, unintentional, potentially fatal poisoning that could have taken place at the Pavilion Theatre. So um, just to wrap up then, because I see we are near our time, um, we've considered two types of crime. One of them, as I say, uh, street crime, uh, which is not a novelty. There are plenty of examples in the 18th century and before of street crime, but as I mentioned earlier, it was highway robbery. So you've got continuity there, but also you've got variation as the area changes, so you get the rise in poisonings, among other crimes. You've also got poverty-related crimes, that kind of thing. That's another story and another chapter. So continuity and change and variation, which, as I'm sure you'll know, as enthusiasts for London, is very much the character of London itself. It continues, it's perpetual, but also you get these continual variations on a theme. So thank you very much for having me here, and I hope you've not regretted your choice. And I hope I leave the court without a stain on my character. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, folks. Has anybody got any questions for David? It was a great talk, chloroform. David, first of all. Thank you for that. You mentioned chloroform at the beginning, but I know you did talk about different poisons. Was that easy to get in the 1850s as well? Was chloroform easy to get? I would imagine so. And the... They were saying regulation took a long while, legislation, sorry, took a long while to catch up with the, the various noxious substances. So I would imagine chloroform will be fairly easy. I think ether was fairly easy to get. And laudanum itself was extremely easy to get, um, tincture of opium. So I would imagine so, but I can only speculate. I'm not a great toxicologist, I'm afraid, or his toxicological historian or whatever you might say. <laughs> 
So, yeah, not totally sure, but I would imagine it was. They were very lax until you get to the second half of the 19th century. Mm. Thank you. A two-part question, please. Okay. First of all, you said that all these um, thieves, male and female, were easy to identify, so were picked up quickly. How were they easy to identify? Just from a description of, from the victim? Or? Well, the people who were sorted, people on the streets. Yeah, because they, as I was saying, all the ones that uh, I've come across that I've mentioned in the book, all repeat offenders, all well-known to the police. That, that's why I don't understand that they didn't make some rudimentary attempt at disguise or something. You know, because all these uh, people who were assaulted, they got the chance to have a look at this person. Cause they, they didn't see all of them, obviously. They only saw the one in front of them. But in the struggle to, uh, for, you know, for things to be taken off of them, they would have had a good look and would be able to describe at least general physical tics or anything like that, characteristics. And the, the, the sergeant or the constable would say, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so and so-and-so. And go and pick them up and back into Chokey. Yeah, so that's what it was. And the second part, mm. um, the, the person who was detained and wrapped around the head oh, yeah. with his clothes, why didn't they kill him? Instead of just leaving him for them to be identifiable. Oh, king, killing's a hanging offence. Oh. Yeah. Robbery <laughs> wasn't. Not by this time. <laughs> mm. Got to remember that hanging was on its way out. Load of judicial reform in the early 19th century. And uh, by the time you get to 1868, with the Offences Against the Person Act of that year, that removed hanging from everything except murder and high treason. Mm. So... I hate to recommend my tours, but uh, in my tour, Making the Punishment Fit, it, it basically in the city, looking at sites connected with mainly capital punishment and how problematic it was. It wasn't a deterrent. And uh, in many cases, the authorities didn't like capital punishment. And uh, where possible, sentences would be uh, commuted or indeed pardoned depending on the situation, you know, and depending on recommendations to mercy and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it, it would have been a very different affair if they'd killed him. I mean, if he'd been a foreign sailor, far from home, that might have been different. But he wasn't. He was British. So, yeah, I mean, just robbing him was enough. And they let him... They probably assumed that you know, he'd be more content of trying to find an, a berth on another ship and, and get out because that's what the sailor ashore wanted because you were only taken on for the one voyage and then you've got to go and find another berth so maybe they were hoping he would chalk it down to experience but it would have been a far more serious matter if they killed him certainly just for some clothes how about the, the solicitor's clerk pardon was it the solicitor's clerk the other fellow oh Jewett yeah mm. solicitor's clerk well uh, that's the thing I mean the, the fact that they left the key after locking the padlock, they put the key under the door. shows that they, they didn't want him hanging around. They wanted him away, you know. Um, and they knew that he wouldn't be able to identify them because he was stark out. He was chloroformed and then dosed with laudanum. So that they knew that he wouldn't be able to identify them. So they were okay. It was only because of Margaret Higgins talking about fencing the goods in the alehouse down the road. That's what got the, the landlady of number eight thinking about it and uh, she went to the police thank you so 
Thank you, David. That was excellent. Really, really enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Don't encourage me. Um, <laughs> and thank you also for sort of you know, concentrating very much on you know crimes that were going on in the Whitechapel area. And oh, I yeah. know your book covers uh, a much larger area than just just Whitechapel, mm -hmm. you know, Eastland. So could you pick just one crime, not Whitechapel, but it's in your book that perhaps is your favourite? Favourite's probably not the right word, is it? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Let's have a think. Well, I mean, the most local one to me is the hanging of John Verlene and John Doyle outside the Salmon and Ball. They were journeyman weavers. This is the Cutters' riots and uh, the 1760s when, well, to be honest, so many trades in the 18th century were g taking all sorts of action because of pay and conditions and so on. But it was the silk weavers who were the most active and, I mean, they used to go around, because uh, the trouble, one of the, the problems was calico coming in from India, being brought in by the East India Company, because that could be printed very easily, whereas silk, you tended to have to weave the pattern in. So a measure was brought in saying that you couldn't bring in printed calico, which is totally useless, because calico printers started to appear in London. But these weavers would go around with bottles of ink, and they go around places like Westminster and so on, where these ladies are wearing calico dresses. They're, ah, calico, eh? And they ink all over the dress to spoil it, because they're being unpatriotic and not wearing British silk. But uh, the thing was, Valene and Doyle seems to have been framed. The, the cutters, the, well, these various trades, but especially the silk weavers, they would go armed in combinations or committees. And they would go to... Weavers' cottages, where the journeyman weavers would do the work, and they would attack the looms belonging to the master weavers who paid the journeyman to do the, the, the work. And they would cut the silk off the looms, which is why they're called the Cutters' Riots. There's an episode of this. You may remember the series Garrow's Law. There's an episode of that which involves some cutters being brought up before the, the bailey. And they would damage as well the equipment belonging to these master weavers who either didn't contribute to the general fund, which was a hardship fund, or didn't pay their journeyman properly. And at the, when the case came to court, John Verlaine, from the, you tell from the name, he's Huguenot, so Protestant French immigrant. John Doyle, Irish Catholic immigrant. And they were framed by the look of it. There's plenty of evidence that they weren't there uh, as part of the raid on Thomas and Mary Poor, on Stocking Frame Alley, r off of Cock Lane, Cock Lane, which is now Redchurch Street. But there seems to have been a bit of money flying around for the witnesses. And so they were convicted, and they should have hanged in October, but it was delayed while they got permission from the king to hang them in Bethnal Green, outside the Salmon and Ball because the idea was that it should be an exemplary punishment. And so hanging them at the middle of the weaving community would try to put the others off. Uh, but that sparked off all sorts of trouble. First of all, Doyle, um, on the scaffold, he called down the, the vengeance of God on the man who bought my money for gold, which seemed to be Louis Chauvet, who had a silk handkerchief manufacturer on Crispin Street in Spitalfields. Um, but after that, when they were hanged in December outside the Salmon and Ball, William Horsford was then found guilty of being in part of the same raid, which was in August. 
And at his trial, there's even more of a sense of money floating around. And one of the witnesses was Daniel Clark, and he ended up being lynched on what was then Hare Street, which is now Cheshire, Cheshire Street. And uh, he was around Shoreditch, on Shoreditch High Street, with another weaver, and basically these journeymen started closing in, and they shepherded him down Shoreditch High Street, down along Hare Street, as was, to a brickfield. And then they stripped him down to his underwear. This is April... It was starting to snow, and they chucked him in uh, a sort of pond that had formed out of the clay soil that had been dug up for bricks and tiles. And they started pelting him with bits of wood and half bricks, broken bricks, brick bats as they're called. And they pulled him out of the water, chucked him on a sand, on a big bank of earth, chucked him back in the water, and he was all over blood by the time that an officer from the Whitechapel Prison, I'm still tracking down the details of Whitechapel Prison, came by and stopped them. And uh, he managed to get the man to the London Hospital, Daniel Clark, but he died. And, uh, and, and that sort of explosion of violence brought the, the Cutters' rights to an end. After that, after 1771, that was when Clark was lynched. There was no more actual violence. And then the Spitalfields Acts were passed to ensure regular wages, fair wages. And by doing that, they choked the weaving trade out because the wages were set. So you couldn't pay a lot of people a low wage in the slack times and you couldn't reward innovation and pay more. So what with the competition from the mills in the north and the West Midlands and imported cloth from overseas, and especially French silk as well, it just choked the trade out. By the time they were repealed in 1824, the East End weaving trade was virtually over. So, yeah, sorry, that, that's a bit rambling. I do apologise. <laughs> but th that's um, the bit that, uh, that always sticks in my mind. Yeah. Just going back to what you were saying earlier about them not bothering to try and hide their faces or whatever when they're yeah. mugging people. Mm. That kind of suggests to me that they would, they were that most that they knew kind of almost suspected a lot. Perhaps all, didn't quite know, but they thought that they weren't going to get reported or they were going to get away with it. Because if you keep doing it and nothing happens in the end, you get blasé about not bothering to hide your features. So that suggests to me that they didn't bother hiding themselves because they kind of assumed that nothing would happen because it normally didn't. Would that be fair? Yeah, quite possibly, yes. I mean, the, as I say, the, the people whom I've mentioned today, they were repeat offenders, so usually a second offence. But this won't be the second time they'd done it. They would have been doing it loads of times. So, yeah, presumably relying on people thinking, I'm not going to get anywhere or something like that, you know. Uh, I mean, obviously, we can only speculate on, on motivation, but that probably was the thing. Today, you get people on the streets suddenly jump out with a, a mask tied round their face and, and a knife or something, you know, hand over your, your phone and your whatever. Um, although, you do on, on scooters, scooter crime, that kind of thing, because they're wearing the helmets. <laughs> there was some organised crime. Um, you may have heard of Joseph Merceron, the boss of Bethnal Green. There's a very good book about that and um, although that was more corruption uh, again we're going back to the 18th century a time of, of corruption really uh, and he was very canny about it he was a, a, a Huguenot 
or a Huguenot descent. Uh, they weren't all weavers, obviously. They got into other things. And his father had been a rent collector. So he got in on that and uh, got in on a lottery scheme. And then he became a property developer. But his big thing is he wanted control. He wanted corruption. And uh, these are the times when the unit of local government was the parish before the boroughs came into being in 1901. And so what he did is he took all little minor duties on the vestry, which is the body that governs the parish, that other people couldn't be bothered to do because he knew he could start building his power base. And uh, his big thing, first of all, was um, corrupt issuing of licenses for public houses because some of them he actually owned, so that's obviously a conflict of interest to start with, uh, but he had a corrupt business relationship with Sampson Hanbury, who ran the brewery on Brick Lane. And he would only issue licenses to pubs that sold Hanbury's beer. And so other breweries tried to get a, a foot in. And he, no, no, no. You want a license for your pub, you sell Hanbury's beer. And nothing else. And so by doing that, that was one of the, um, one of the two trials that uh, he faced in 1813 corrupt uh, licensing of public houses. But the other thing was he got charge of the poor's rates. And this was the money that you paid as a rate payer that would go into a fund to alleviate the sufferings of the poor, of the parish. For him, it was his personal piggy bank. And uh, he started helping himself. And he was okay because the, the rector of the church of St. Matthew's, Bethnal Green, was always absentee. This is what they call pluralism. You get a churchman who would take all these different livings and would take the income but would set a curate to actually do the work. But then 1809, Joshua King came along and he wasn't an absentee and he decided to take Mercer on. on. And there was a long struggle and eventually he got Mercer on convicted of fiddling the, rate, uh, the pause rates, helping himself and also the public house thing. I tell you, it shows the chutzpah that Merceron had. Um, first time he went to court was in 1811, I think, and the solicitor representing Joshua King, the rector, said to King, don't you worry about coming to court, I'll sort it out. Offered no evidence for the prosecution. So clearly he'd been sweetened. After that, King took, uh, Merceron rather, took his legal expenses out of the pause rate, including his cab fares from his home to his legal advisor. That's the kind of boy he was. And uh, he did um, a term in prison. Rather than go to prison, he offered to pay a fine of £10,000 in 1813. That's a serious amount of money. It shows how well he was doing, though, doesn't it? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so there was opportunity for that kind of thing. But in terms of the gangs, I'm not that very up on gangs. I know more about 20th century gangs. I'm not sure what was going on in the 19th century. I'm not aware, not that I've come across. I haven't really... Um, yeah. And wasn't there a guy that Fagin was based on down Valence Roadway or down uh, Lehman Street that uh, Dickens based the character of Fagin oh, on? Oh, right. Quite possibly. Again, my Dickensian knowledge isn't that hot but quite possibly I mean there, there would have been uh, that kind of thing I mean Fagin wasn't just created out of thin air that kind of thing yeah I mean there, there would have been gangs 
I'm, I'm just uh, not sure about organised crime in the sense of having a Mr Big in the middle and that sort of thing. But oh, yeah, the gangs were often these were gangs. I mean, these uh, street robbers, they were gangs. They never operated so all. There was two or three of them. Um, and, of course, your body snatchers were always in gangs too. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, you get a lot of gangs, but I don't know about... That's slightly different from organised crime. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a story about a schoolboy who wanted to poison his yeah. schoolmaster because he was annoying. His master, yeah. And mm. I am a school teacher, and I know oh, right. lots of children probably find me annoying. But um, I wondered if you, there are any stories where the child was successful and did manage to kill their teacher. Because I need to tell my class when I get back. Any of them were successful. Um, <laughs> thankfully, no, I didn't come across any. I think the thing is that the... Any tips of what I should look out for, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> these kids didn't really know what they were doing. That was the thing. You know, they were grabbing these uh, stuff and not thinking, first of all, is it lethal? Second, is it soluble? And so on. I mean, the um, amino mercuric chloride that was put in the, in the tonic, that wasn't soluble. So it floated as a precipitate on the top. I mentioned the girl down off of uh, Cable Street. The phosphorus paste wasn't soluble, so it just sat on the bottom. A lot of it was just ignorance, really, you know. But there were children. Had they been adults, they would have thought about it more. But I think, I think it's just that sort of children lashing out. I mean, yeah. um, you know, sometimes... I mean, there were other cases of, uh, of uh, children that I noticed briefly. I didn't really go into them in great detail, but uh, children trying to poison parents and guardians and so on. And it's not necessarily that they were sort of had a festering grudge that had lasted for years. You know, often it would be a sort of reaction to things. So, sorry, I, I haven't got the, the, the name of the girl in, the, in my notes. I've got it in the book, obviously, uh, who poisoned her mum. But, I mean, she was living with her parents quite okay. And it just seems to have been a combination of this young woman either saying or the girl thinking she was saying that they were going to set up business together. A combination of that and dad being far away and mum being so ill and, you know... That sort of hothouse atmosphere that you get with multiple occupation in those days, which most houses were, you know, the whole family in one room. And consequently, that, I think, just triggered it. And so I don't think it was premeditated. I think it's just sort of, well, it was in a sense premeditated, but it sort of come up very quickly. I'm, I'm going to do this. I've got to get out. Right then. Well, thank you very much, David. That was a great talk tonight. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.